Welcome to a new episode of New Work in Intellectual History. My name is Selma Sondern, and I am a master's student of intellectual history at the University of St. Andrews. With me today is Professor Rachel Hammersley, who teaches intellectual history at the Newcastle University. Rachel's work has largely focused on how political concepts such as republicanism, democracy, and revolution were understood, disseminated to new audiences, and transformed in the 17th and 18th centuries, particularly in Britain and France. She recently published an intellectual biography of the 17th century political thinker James Harrington, as well as a textbook on republicanism. Today, we will be talking about both publications and how they led to Rachel's current research project on experiencing political texts, which is due to start in 2022. Welcome, Rachel. It's a pleasure to speak to you today. It's a pleasure to speak to you too, Salma. So, Rachel, in 2020, you published a textbook entitled Republicanism in Introduction with Polity Press. Could you tell us what led you to write a textbook about republicanism? I've been working on republicanism uh, for quite a long time now, probably since I did uh, my own master's um, degree in intellectual history um, at Sussex University. Um, and one of the things that I've been interested in right from the start is the idea that republicanism is a dynamic political language, that it's not something that's uh, fixed, but that it's adapted, um, it changes uh, as it's picked up and developed by um, different groups of people in different contexts at different times. Um, my own work, early work, focused on um, the ways in which 17th century English republicanism, uh, those ideas, those writings were then picked up during the course of uh, the French revolution in particular, but in 18th century France as well, and the ways in which they were then used in slightly different contexts and how that affected the ways in which um, they were presented and, and adapted. So I've always been interested in those, those kind of adaptations, the way in which that works. Um, and I was very conscious, having worked on republicanism, having taught republicanism, that there isn't really a textbook um, that, that takes you right through from obviously a that begins in the ancient world um, to the 20th, 20th, even the 21st century. Um, and so I felt that was something that actually I could provide and it would allow me the opportunity to look at some of those, to, to focus very much on those transformations. So instead of saying, here's the fixed idea of what republicanism is, um, it involves this, this and this, actually to show how it had been adapted, how it had been used at different points of time. And even actually, because what you get um, certainly at kind of particular moments like um, the French Revolution, you get actually competing versions of republicanism working against each other, different republicans, you know, arguing against each other. And it's that sort of thing that I think um, really sort of interests me and fascinates me. And I wanted to use the book to, to kind of explore. It sounds like it's very difficult to have, um, well, to say what republicanism is in, in one sentence, was it um, possible for you to arrive at some key arguments in the book well, regarding so, competing versions and adaptations? So one of, the, one, of the, one of the issues that we have in thinking about republicanism is that there are, there are even today, there are sort of two 
distinct meanings that we sometimes merge together, but that we sometimes kind of separate out, um, and that have existed through um, history. Um, so sometimes we simply think about um, Republican government as government in the public interest, so government that is directed towards um, the public good. And there are various arguments about what's required in order to make that happen. Um, but of course, the other understanding that's kind of common today is the notion of Republican government being government without a king. So you might contrast monarchy on the one hand with republic um, on the other. And that's a slightly different way of thinking about it. And, and one of the things I'm interested in is that that notion of republicanism as anti-monarchism sort of emerged. You first have signs of it in the Renaissance, but it picks up in the 17th century in the context of the English Revolution. Um, and obviously it becomes much more dominant in the aftermath of the American and French revolutions at the end of the 18th century. But the notion of Republican government has government in the public interest and the idea that you might be able to have something like Republican government with a monarchical figurehead doesn't completely disappear. And so in part, I'm interested in the interrelationship between those things. I think a couple of other um, kind of constants, if you like, things that remain important throughout for people who are talking about, writing about, thinking about um, republicanism. First of all, is an emphasis on liberty and the importance of, of liberty. Um, and, and that crops up again and again. It's always key. The other is, and it's sometimes related to the emphasis on liberty, is the idea um, that there needs to be some element of popular participation within the system in order for that liberty to be secured. So there's, there's often an emphasis on popular sovereignty in some way, on the idea that the people have to, there has to be mechanisms to allow the popular voice to influence politics. And these continuing, or these aspects that are continued throughout the history of republicanism, would you say they are still relevant to our contemporary politics and in which ways? I think they absolutely are still relevant today. Um, both of those notions are complicated today, I suppose. Um, I, I guess one of the ways in which I think I suppose I'm, I'm twisting the question slightly, but I would say one of the ways in which republicanism, the republican ideas of the past might be important for us today, might have something to tell us today, is particularly around that question of popular participation, especially in large states. Because again, one of the things that we see certainly from um, the English revolution of the mid 17th century is that, okay, you're now dealing with states where people can't gather together to exercise their political rights. There has to be some kind of representative system to do that. Um, but there's some really interesting ideas about how you ensure that the representative body is accountable to the people, how you try to ensure that, you know, the representatives aren't simply doing what suits them, acting in their own interests, rather than acting in the interests of the public good. And it seems to me that we still might have things to learn today uh, about those questions of accountability. How do we keep representatives accountable? And I think the history of republicanism has interesting answers to that question. 
It seems like this book holds very relevant insights for a very broad audience. Um, could you tell us what do you want to convey to your readers in the book? Um, I guess there's different levels to that. One of the things that I'm wanting to do is that republicanism is a complex term. It's a complex concept. It's a concept that has changed over time. But I'm a real, I, I, I'm a real believer in we shouldn't shy away from complex ideas and we ought to be able to explain them in a, in a clear, in a straightforward fashion. And actually, it's really important that we do so. And I think it's really important today that people are able to understand key political concepts, that they're able to understand the history of those concepts and make sense of them in order for them to act as citizens um, in the modern world. So on a kind of uh, on one level, what I'm trying to do is, is that sort of um, giving people a sense of not, not dumbing down, not making it, um, you know, simpler than it is, giving a sense of the complexity, but actually trying to do so in a way that is accessible, that makes sense, that people can understand, and hopefully that people can understand the relevance and the importance of understanding these concepts for their own time and their own political engagement. I think that's um, very relevant. And this concept of republicanism, it's also a major aspect of the intellectual biography um, of James Harrington, which you published with Oxford University Press in 2019. To start this part of the interview off, could you briefly outline who James Harrington was? Sure, so Harrington was um, a political thinker um, who lived um, in the early part of the 17th century between 1611 and 1677. Um, because he lived during that time, he experienced the English Revolution of the 1640s and 50s. Um, he lived through that revolution um, and actually all of his political writings, which he published in a very short period between 1656 and 1659, are concerned with making sense of those recent events, trying to come to an understanding of them, and also um, presenting uh, ideas about how um, politics can be improved um, in, the, in the aftermath of, of, of those events, and particularly how that notion, how you can have um, government in the public good, in the public interest. Um, so, so he's a kind of, he's an interesting political figure. He's tended to be seen as, um, characterised as a Republican. That's the label um, that's tended to be given to him um, since kind of the, the second half of the 20th century. Um, and that's certainly, in many ways, that's a, a reasonable label to apply to him. He, he you know, put forward arguments for, for Republican or as he would have had it, Commonwealth government in the context of the English Revolution. Um, but I got kind of interested in... Um, in sort of digging a bit deeper in terms of that, um, partly uh, because there's a sort of mismatch between his writings and his own political experiences and, and political life. So um, he he's not he doesn't fight in the civil war. He's not directly involved in that sense, but he does, he provides financial support to parliament. So he, he, he's a kind of supporter of parliament during the civil war. Um, 
but in after the end of the first civil war when the king has been captured um, Harrington is employed as gentleman of the bedchamber to the king um, while the king is being held in captivity. So it's a really curious position because he is employed by parliament, but he's employed by parliament as a servant to the king and he works in very close proximity um, to the king and gets to know him very well. Um, and the, the kind of contemporary accounts suggest that they got on well, that they enjoyed each other's company. Um, and this is further complicated by the fact that earlier in the 1640s, um, Harrington had also acted um, as a kind of agent for Charles I's nephew, um, Charles Louis, um, who, uh, together with his mother, um, they, when civil war broke out, they declared their support actually for Parliament rather than for um, their, their relative Charles, although, of course, we have to be careful about, you know, they're, they're supporting the parliamentary cause, but there's also a great deal of um, uh, family loyalty and respect. So again, their position is a curious one. Um, and Harrington ends up acting as the agent for um, Charles Louis in, um, in England at, at the time. And so again, this is a kind of curious position um, for somebody who uh, goes on it's a curious position anyway just because of the complexities of that but it's also a curious position for somebody who we characterize as a republican given the kind of anti-monarchical notions of republicanism that were prominent um, certainly during the 1650s so I was kind of interested in well how do we make sense of this what what is it how, how does he do that is that just you know he's got these principles and they go out the window in terms of his personal relationships or is there some way in which we can make sense of how those political activities and his political writings um, fit together so one of the things that I'm trying to do in the book um, is to do is to do that another aspect of it is that as I said, my earlier work was looking at um, the ways in which uh, 17th century English Republican writings were used during the French Revolution. Um, and I was struck by the fact that where the, some of the French revolutionaries pick up on, on Harrington, his works are actually translated and they make use of, of his ideas. But when they do so, what they tend to emphasize is the idea that he was a democratic thinker. And that was slightly at odds with the characterization of him as a Republican and actually as quite an aristocratic Republican for various reasons. So I was also interested in, okay, so how does this work? Well, what, what, you know, what is it that makes these 18th century French thinkers see Harrington as a model of a, of a Democrat? Um, and actually, again, when we dig a little bit more deeply, interestingly, Harrington's own self-description of his uh, model constitution is that it is a commonwealth or democracy. Um, he doesn't use the word republic. It, it, he sees what he's doing as being a democracy, although he has quite an idiosyncratic way of understanding what, you know, his definition of democracy we would see as quite um, not typical. But that's the, the way in which he's characterizing himself. And so um, that's clearly picked up by these 18th century writers. So, so I, I set out to try and kind of, I suppose they were problems, they were issues that I wanted to, to understand and make sense of by delving a bit deeper into his, his life and his writings. It does seem like you provide quite a different account of um, Harrington than previous accounts of his 
life and also of his works. I wanted to ask, what implications do you think does the perspective offered in the book have for uh, our understanding of the 17th century more generally, and also for the discipline of intellectual history? There are a couple of things, I think, um, in relation to that. In terms of the understanding of the 17th century, and particularly the understanding of um, the period of the English Revolution, um, I, f I feel as though there's a tendency to, to see that notion of um, parliamentarians versus royalists, but also perhaps Republicans versus royalists as an absolutely fundamental division. Um, you know, you were either on one side or you were on the other. And one of the things that really emerged from looking at Harrington was that it, it, it feels as though it wasn't quite as simple as that. So one of the things that he's trying to do, one of his concerns is to think about how do you heal a divided nation in the aftermath of civil war? And it's clear that he's trying to appeal to some former royalists um, to kind of create a kind of middle ground of people who will be able to support the new regime and where you have enough people um, able to do that. Um, so yes, in certain senses, he's a Republican. Yes, that's where his sympathies lie, but he's not unlike some of the other Republicans of the time. And actually he, he argues against some of the other Republicans precisely because he wants to, to bring other people into the political nation. So for example, where other Republicans were saying, well, we have to exclude former royalists from citizenship we can't allow them to vote because that would be a really dangerous thing to do harrington says no no no. actually you've got to allow them to vote it's really important that you do otherwise things are never going to to heal so i think that that's really interesting to me that it just we have to think carefully about yes there's this fundamental divide but that doesn't mean that people you can just neatly place people one side or the other there's a more complicated there's something more complicated going on there and the same is true with the kind of tendency to see 1660 and the restoration of the monarchy as a complete watershed because what happens Harrington's written these works his works are written in the context of um, the aftermath of civil war and and at the time of republican rule um, and yet what happens after his uh what happens after 1660 is that some of his friends um they don't just say, oh, well, those works are no longer relevant. They were they were written, you know, they were of that time, they're not applicable anymore. What they do is just pick up the principles and the ideas and say, well, we can just apply these to, to monarchy. There's no reason why we can't apply these same ideas to monarchy. And they go about trying to do so. And that goes back to that notion of actually being able to adapt and and adjust um, political concepts, political ideas for different circumstances. In terms of, um, I mean, there are probably lessons there for the history, you know, for intellectual history as well. But in terms of the big kind of takeaway message for me um, from the work I did on the Harrington book, um, it, it actually goes in a slightly different direction and takes us more towards the current work that I'm doing. So one of the other things that when, when I started to really investigate Harrington's writings in detail, one of the things that really started to come out to me was um, his the kind of literary side of what he was doing um, and his concern with style and genre uh, and even the material form of texts. Um, and this is something that certainly had been, you know, I'd completely missed previously, 
partly when people tend to comment on Harrington's literary style, they tend to be quite dismissive. He's quite turgid. He's quite difficult to read. Um, so people don't immediately think, oh, this is wonderful prose that, you know, shows his his abilities as a as a writer, if you like. Um, but also in terms of some of the material aspects of it, um, of course, much of my initial encounter with Harrington was through modern editions, which don't always they're not always laid out in the same way as the original. They don't always follow the kind of um, particular typography and, and, and things like that. So I've not been aware of these things. When I started to look, I realized that he was doing several things. So one thing he was doing, um, he was being very careful about the vocabulary that he used. Um, and I'd even go so far as to say that he was developing a kind of revolutionary vocabulary for the revolutionary world in which he was living. And that meant um, changing the meaning of certain words. So I talked earlier about democracy and how he had quite an idiosyncratic view of it. I think that's very deliberate. And one of the things he's trying to do is to say, democracy is not really about um, uh, free speech and, and debate as, as we associate with kind of ancient Athens. Actually, it's about um, being able to vote to accept or reject laws. And that's the fundamental um, feature of democracy, if you like. So he's he's moving that term in exactly the same way he, he shifts the term aristocracy so that instead of just being, a, for him, it's not associated with kind of landed aristocracy, um, but it's really about merit and, and uh, you know, your political abilities, if you like. And that's what's key. So there's this shifting of the vocabulary there's also experimentation with genre. So he, he um, experiments with a range, he uses a range of genres in his writings. Um, uh, he has some works that are written as, uh, you know, epistolary exchanges, letters between people. Um, he experiments with dialogues, for example. He even occasionally makes use of images. His main work, The Commonwealth of Oceana, is, is sometimes described as a utopia and actually incorporates several different genres within it. Um, so he's very conscious of what he's doing. And there's also an attempt to kind of marry the form and the content of his writings. Um, so for example, in Oceana, as I said earlier, he's, he's partly wanting to heal a divided nation to bring royalists and parliamentarians together. And one of the things he does in the work is to set a kind of parliamentarian type genres alongside more royalist genres that were popular at the time. So he's he's putting those forms together and then arguing that actually, you know, you can draw these people together as well. But what's particularly important to him is the importance of um, the role of experience. So the idea that actually particularly the ordinary people need to experience things in order to make sense of them. Um, he, he talks about the idea that, um, you know, really what you would need, they'd need to be able to try on a new constitution for size in the way that you would try clothes on. Um, but actually it's not possible to do that. You can't try on a constitution and then decide whether it, it works or not. So I came to the conclusion that part of the reason that Oceana takes on this quite unusual, quasi-utopian form is that what he's trying to do is allow his readers to experience his model constitution. 
So he sets it up as though this is actually happening. Um, he projects it into the future. And you almost imagine the idea that people are supposed to be reading it and are supposed to be thinking that this is actually going on. This is happening in London at the time. He offers really detailed that they can visualize things like the ballot that he proposes that's quite a complex idea so that they can imagine this happening. Um, and I think the idea there is that they're, they're being given this opportunity to sort of experience his model, to try it on for size, if you like, within their own head, even if they can't do it in practice. Um, so it, it, it led me to think that actually these, these what we might think of as the kind of literary um, elements of political text are actually really, really important um, and haven't always been given perhaps the attention that we can learn things from them about the text themselves. And they perhaps we don't, as intellectual historians, don't necessarily tend to think too much about those aspects of the, of the works. Thank you for that. Um, you just mentioned the importance um, for ordinary people or for readers to experience the concepts that are brought forth in political texts. And um, this is also picked up in your upcoming project entitled Experiencing Political Texts that is due to start in 2022. Could you outline um, what this project will be about beyond Harrington and how it is structured? Uh, absolutely. So as I suggested, it emerges very much out of the Harrington project and out of those uh, observations that I've made about his writings. But it quickly became clear to me that he's not alone um, in thinking about those literary dimensions and um, the material dimensions of, of texts. And he's not alone in the notion of trying to allow his readers to experience um, or to have an, have an effect on them through um, the kind of uh, form and um, materiality of the text. And I think this was probably particularly crucial for Republican writers because of their need to um, encourage uh, popular engagement in politics, to encourage a shift from otium contemplation to negotium action. Um, the idea that that's, that's what you need. You need a citizen body that are engaged in politics if you're going to have uh, a successful Republican government. So I think it's particularly important for them but I don't think we only see it um, in uh, Republican texts of the time. So if we were to think about a text like um, the Icon Basilique that was uh, produced just after Charles I um, uh, was executed in 1649, um, we can see something similar going on in terms of an attempt to encourage readers to engage with the text in terms of using narrative and image to influence how they read the text and how they understand the events that have recently taken place. So I think literary strategies and the material dimensions of texts are being used very deliberately by early modern writers um, to help to, to kind of make the argument and to engage their readers. Um, and so part of what the project is designed to do is to in partly investigate these things so that we get a better understanding of the intentions and purposes um, behind those texts. But it also has led me to think about how the literary and material dimensions of early modern political texts might be better reflected in modern digital editions. Um, so I mentioned earlier that we tend to quite often tend to read 
uh, older political texts in modern editions and often these don't uh, follow the kind of format, the layout, the structure of the original text and sometimes that means we lose the, the sense of that. Um, of course now we're tending to read texts online much more so we might just use a digital edition and there you might have the original layout but actually you you lose a sense of the materiality of the text you don't know immediately how big or small it is um, you don't have a sense of the quality of the paper which might tell you about the kind of audience that it's aimed at those sorts of things um, and so it's led me to wonder are there things that we can do in terms of producing um, modern digital editions of these texts that will actually um, give the reader a, a sense of these things and make these things much more apparent and therefore help the reader to see the relevance and importance of those things um, in terms of the meaning and the, the argument of the of the text itself. Um, so the, the project is designed to kind of explore that and there's also an element of thinking about on that basis well where do we get our political ideas and knowledge from today how do we read it does it is it different to you know if we get our political information from Twitter is does that does that kind of change how we understand how we think about that information um, uh, as compared with if we were reading a newspaper or whatever. So I think there are bigger questions there about political knowledge, political education, um, how we access that information today. Um, but the focus of the project is very much on thinking about um, how it applies to, to early modern political texts and how they were designed to be experienced and whether or not they were actually experienced um, kind of in practice by those who were um, reading them, making sense of them at the time. Thank you. And do you know already um, how exactly you're going to go about that? Um, are you going to focus on specific writers, on specific periods, um, audiences? Could you expand on that? We've been lucky in that we've got some funding from um, the Arts and Humanities Research Council to initially organize um, a, a kind of network. Um, so we're going to gather together a group of different people who, who in various ways have been thinking about some of these questions. Um, we'll have an initial workshop where we look at the um, kind of literary genre and the way in which that is, is used in different sorts of political texts. The focus will be on the early modern period so that there's a kind of boundary uh, to it, if you like. Um, we have a second workshop where we'll be thinking more about the material dimensions of those texts and, and what role that plays in our understanding and, and, and the sense we make of them. And then we have a final workshop where we're really thinking about those digital questions and thinking about um, how might we reflect these things in digital editions, how might we reflect them um, in terms of the way we catalogue these texts and present them in libraries and archives as well. So at that workshop, we've got involvement um, from a number of librarians and archivists. We're also going to be um, putting on two exhibitions, um, one at Newcastle University and one at the National Library of Scotland, to allow us to really think about some of these questions, to actually set some of these texts alongside each other and think about how audiences engage with them, um, how we present them. Um, and so I'm hoping that out of that, there will both be um, some new ways of paying attention to these aspects of the texts, but also new ways of thinking about the presentation of early modern political texts um, in editions, but also in libraries and uh, uh, you know, around the world today. 
Thank you for that in insight. Allow me one last uh, question. Now that you have yourself um, discovered how important it can be to experience political text, has that changed your way of researching and presenting your research as well? That's a really interesting question. Um, uh, yes, it, it, it certainly has. Um, and and some, <laughs> in some ways in more playful ways and in some ways less. Um, so I have experimented a little bit um, only really in um, spoken papers um, with more, with, with slightly more playful, with more um, creative, um, I, I'm hesitating to use the word fictional, but there's a kind of, um, uh, so I, I, for example, I, I was in, gave a presentation where two of us sort of did a, a dialogue setting the ideas of two different thinkers alongside each other and presenting it you know as as a dialogue engaging with each other um and that was that was kind of uh interesting um but i'm i i feel slightly limited i've been so trained in terms of um you know academic training uh that that feels sort of um uh it's hard to break out of those boundaries. Um, I'm quite interested at the moment. I've got um, a new colleague at um, Newcastle who's very interested in poetry as a research method. And so that's got me kind of thinking about, okay, so what does that look like and what does that mean? And is that something that might be of interest and of relevance? Um, I suppose in much more practical terms, um, I started, it dates back to when I was working on the Harrington project. Um, I started writing a regular at and, and have ended up, I've just kept that going and I'm writing um, a blog once a month, reflecting on research that I'm doing at the moment. Um, but that's sort of, um, that's a different kind of writing from writing academic books. And I've quite enjoyed you know exploring that sort of genre and thinking about well how do you present these ideas I guess there there's much more back and forth between the present and the and the past than there might be in conventional academic works um so th th that's there's a bit of experimentation there but I think I'm probably conveying the fact that I still feel slightly uncomfortable about that there's a there's a sense in which that kind of academic way of doing things it's, it's hard to get beyond that um that that training if you like I can imagine that, but I do think it's a very fascinating endeavor to both examine how political texts have been experienced uh, and should be experienced today as well, and also to um, to look into how to um, do that oneself. Well, we've come to the end of the interview. Rachel, I want to thank you again for taking the time today to speak to me. It's been a great pleasure. And I do look forward to hearing from you in the future. Until next Thank time. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to speak. Bye.